Again, it's good to have you here this morning. Good to have those of you that are visiting. We hope that you will will make yourself at home and be able to worship together with us. And so as you can tell already, I'm breaking from the Psalms this morning for just one week to remind you of an important doctrine. So if you would turn to the epistle of Paul to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to begin there and work our way to chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. And this teaching, or these teachings, I should say, are not new for us here at Cornerstone, not, not at all. It's a subject, however, that demands repetition. It's foundational to gospel ministry as we seek to live for the glory of God. And as we begin to expand our ministries here in Myrtle Beach, we must never forget because we must preach it and we must live it. We must believe it, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we give praise to you, God, for your word. God, thank you that you have spoken, and you have spoken clearly and precisely. And God, you have revealed your glory. You have revealed our sinfulness and our desperate need for you. But God, we thank you this morning that you have revealed a salvation that is not from within us, that is apart from us, a salvation that is all of you. And we give you praise for that this morning. God, may you this morning speak to your word, illuminate your word that we would have understanding, that we could grasp the glory of the gospel of God and then to apply it to our lives. And we will give you praise, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. In Job chapter 9, Job not only gives us an amazing picture of who God is, he asks a most profound question in verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? Job is basically asking How can sinful man be considered righteous before the creator who is perfectly holy? Today, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul clearly answers that same question in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Paul introduces the book, and he begins by introducing himself in verse 1. And so you can just follow along. Some of this will be up there, but you might want to follow along. It's certainly up to you. But he begins by introducing himself in verse 1 as a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God. The apostle Paul was God's willing slave, and he had been sent by God to preach the gospel of God, the good news of God which reveals that God is the source, the author, the implementer, and the completer of salvation. You see, it's the gospel of God. The theme of this book is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, where? Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 
So the theme of this book is the gospel of God that reveals God's righteousness and is received through faith and lived by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul declares all men have been found guilty before God, all of us. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, Paul speaks first to those who are without the law, the Gentiles, the lawless, those who suppress the truth of God. In verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness, excuse me, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul shows us that the Gentiles, those without the law of God, are under God's righteous judgment. While the truth of God revealed in creation cannot save, the Gentiles' awareness through creation of God's eternal power and Godhead deems that center, that, that sinner, that Gentile without excuse. It deems him guilty. God's wrath is being revealed, and here's how. In verse 24, God gave them over to impurity. God gave who over? Those who suppress the truth of God revealed through creation. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Verse 28, not only do they practice these things which are worthy of death, but they also give hearty approval. The word is to applaud those who practice these things. Then in chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, Paul speaks to those with the law, to the Jews who had the law of God, those who had an outward form of righteousness or morality. Here Paul demonstrates that the Jews are no different than the Gentiles, that all are under sin. Chapter 2, verse 11, he tells us that there's no partiality with God. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. He speaks to those who condemn the Gentiles, but then practice the same things. In chapter 2, verse 12, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see, outwardly, many Jews appeared righteously, but inward they were filled with dead men's bones. Paul says that because the Jews say one thing and do another, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles, yet they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. But these whom God chose and gave his commandments were spiritually no different than the Gentiles. And then in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, Paul condemns all under sin, both Jew and Gentile alike. Chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged. Paul, as an apostle, had already charged, God had charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. And then in chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, Paul strings together various Old Testament texts to reveal the depravity of all men, of all of us. And he begins in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, quoting Ecclesiastes 7.20. 1 
Verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Psalm 14, 1 and 2. Verse 12, all have turned aside and together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one, Psalm 14, 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the word of God. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Here's the image of a throat bearing decay and stench. He continues with their, th- with their tongues. They keep practicing or keep deceiving, quoting Psalm 5, 9. The poison of asp or vipers is under their lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Quoting Psalm 10, 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Quoting Isaiah chapter 59, verse 7. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Again, Isaiah 59, 7. And the path of peace in verse 17, they have not known. Quoting Isaiah 59, 8, verse 18, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting Psalm 36, 1. You see, the Apostle Paul pens these inspired words, quoting the very inspired words of God, the Old Testament, declaring all men under sin, all men are guilty, all continually fall short of God's glorious standard, all are separated from God and are at, according to chapter 5 later, are at enmity with God or enemies of God. You see, there is no partiality with God. Even those with the law, God's chosen people were not made right by the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed or stopped or literally fenced in. And all the world may become accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It doesn't matter what moral standard that you seek to live up to. It doesn't matter that you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter anything about human goodness, because our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. All are under sin. All are condemned. All stand before God condemned. Condemned by him. Apart from Paul's introduction, you would come to chapter 3, verse 20, and you're left with utter hopelessness. All men are guilty sinners before God. We're all unable and unwilling to turn to God on our own. We're helpless. He leaves us with absolutely no hope at this point if it ended here. But Paul gives us one of those divine conjunctions in chapter 3, verse 21. Here in this verse, he turns the table on this divine courtroom scene. And so beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, we see that guilty sinners are declared righteous before God. Here we come to one of the most amazing passages in all of the scriptures. They're all amazing, but this is profound in a special way. Chapter 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No. By a law of faith. Verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. First notice God's glorious plan from ancient days in verse 21. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul begins this verse with that divine conjunction, but now. It's a conjunction that changes everything. It's a conjunction that gives us hope. It's a conjunction of grace, and it's a conjunction of contrast. Notice the contrast with the preceding verse. Verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law never made anyone right before God. The Mosaic Covenant never made anyone right before God. It only reveals man to be exceedingly sinful. Yet the law was believed by the Jew to be a source of their relationship with God. But Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. If we go back one verse further, he said in verse 19, or we saw, in other words, in that verse, that the law declares the whole world guilty before God. The law does not save. Whether we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant or any religious law, any religious system, it does not save. If you think that you'll be accepted by God because you hang the Ten Commandments on your wall and you do your best to keep them, you're sadly mistaken. The word of God is clear. The law is a mirror that reveals our depraved condition. We look at the law and we see ourselves. We see our guilt. We see our sins. It reveals, therefore, our desperate need for Christ. It is a schoolmaster that points us to Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. Verse 21, but now... It was at this moment in history that God had provided a sacrifice for sin, a satisfaction for sin, proving himself, proving God that he is just, proving that he does not overlook sin, but yet provides a way by his grace. Paul writing to those in Galatia in chapter 4 writes this, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
This redemption sets us free, and it makes us sons of the living God. He purchased, he bought us out of the bondage of sin and out of the consequences of sin. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has appeared. It's made visible or made apparent. And folks, this is the good news. The gospel makes the righteousness of God apparent. The gospel demonstrates God's righteousness. It is the gospel of God. That's what Paul says. It demonstrates that he could not and would not overlook sin. He only postponed judgment until the fullness of time. And then he judged his own son for our transgressions. He poured out his holy wrath on his son as a substitute for those who believe. What grace. What amazing grace. This is the grace that John Newton sang about, penning these words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But notice 21 again. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is the same righteousness that the law demanded. The righteousness that man could not keep because of his stony hearts. So the law and the prophets proclaim God's perfect righteousness. They reveal that man is unable to achieve God's righteous standard to live up to his glory. And they point us to the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, not like the old covenant, but a new covenant in which we are made to be God's people and empowered to walk as the Lord Jesus Christ walked. Notice verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God is revealed to both Jew and Gentile alike. There is no distinction. It is only through faith. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. There again, there's no distinction. It's through faith to all. It's through the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness does not originate from within us. As it's been said, it's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us. It's not based upon our ability to keep the law. Rather, it's based upon God and his righteousness and is received through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith itself that is a gift of God. Faith. Let's define it. It's a firm persuasion. A conviction, a confidence, a trust in God's word and his faithfulness. It's not just believing that he exists. It's not even believing that he died on a cross, that Christ died on a cross. For even the demons believe and tremble. It is believing God. It is trusting him to save you. It's Complete confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, putting all confidence in Christ and Christ alone to save you. Now notice God's declared righteousness and his redemption of the sinner out of sin's bondage in verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace. 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Who are these whom God justifies? Is it the righteous, the self-righteous? No. Who are these in this context? It's in verse 23. It is those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is those who are sinners and they know it. The word sin means to miss the mark. It's to miss the bullseye of God's glory. It's to fall short. Present tense continually fall short since our efforts do not, us, do not even bring us up to the target. They actually take us the opposite way because they're filthy rags. Verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. These are those whom God justifies, the sinner. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in Mark 2. Later in this book, in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But that's not what Christ has done. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear it this morning? Christ died for sinners. That should encourage our hearts because I believe. Matter of fact, I know because the word of God teaches us that we all fit into that category. We are sinners We are the chief of sinners. That's how we should see ourselves. We all are sinners before a holy God and therefore are condemned and stand in need of his grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Justified means to be declared righteous. It is a forensic declaration, a judicial act of God, whereby he declares the sinner as righteous in his sight. It's not only that God first enables us to live righteous, or I said that wrong. It's not so that God enables us to live righteously, and then he can declare us righteous. Not at all. He declares the sinner righteous based upon his righteousness. God declares sinners righteous through faith in Christ. He imputes, Even he imputes the righteousness of Christ on the believing sinner's spiritual account. Using Abraham as an example, later, again, in this book, chapter 4, Paul demonstrates this truth. Chapter 4, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited It was accounted to. It was imputed to him as righteousness. Imputed is to place on the account of another. It's through faith that we're justified. Justification is an act of God whereby he declares the sinner righteous, imputing to him the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So not only does God declare the believing sinner righteous, he imputes his own righteousness the very righteousness of Jesus Christ on the account of that sinner. So when God looks at you, if you're in Christ through faith, he sees you as 
righteous. He sees you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, again, being justified as a free gift by his grace. It's a gift. It's freely given. It's without cause. It's without merit or earning on our part. What is grace? It's God's extending his favor on the undeserving. It's been called unmerited favor. It's the goodness of God bestowed even on the enemies of God. For apart from Christ, we're enemies of God. And I don't follow him, and you probably know why, but years ago, I was blessed by a quote in his book, Chuck Swindoll, the book Grace Awakening, in which he said, let's imagine that you have a six-year-old son whom you love dearly. Tragically, one day, you find out that your son has been horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the crime find the killer. You have a choice. If you used every means in your power to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be vengeance. If, however, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and perform a fair trial, he pleads guilty, and the sentence is capital punishment, that is justice. But if you should plead for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home, and adopt him as your son, that is grace. That sums up the concept of grace. But the difference, however, of divine grace is that God in the person of Christ took the guilt and paid the penalty and satisfied God's justice. He pardons our sins. He forgives us completely. He gives us his own righteousness. He adopts us as his son, and he promises to take us home with him forever and share, and he will share the inheritance that belongs to his son. That's God's grace. That's amazing grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to be delivered by means of paying a price. It was commonly used in two ways. One for paying a ransom to free a prisoner from his captors, or secondly, paying the price to free a slave from his master. In Christ, we are redeemed. We are purchased out of slavery to sin and out of its consequences, out of its eternal consequences. Notice we are freely justified by his grace through the, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ alone. Every aspect of salvation is in Christ alone. It is not Christ plus keeping the law. It is not Christ plus any religious effort. It is not Christ plus my personal best. Folks, salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Notice finally the satisfaction or the appeasement. Specifically here, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Jesus Christ was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. It wasn't in secret. It was a public display. 
publicly as a propitiation. It's the word, and we've heard it many times, hilasterion. It means an appeasement or satisfaction. This word, hilasterion, covers two aspects, both expiation and propitiation. Expiation refers to Christ as the payment. It's the death by the shedding of blood. So Christ is the hilasterion. He is the payment. But it also points to propitiation. Excuse me. It speaks of the appeasement of God's wrath based upon the payment. It's exactly what his death accomplished. So Christ purchased the hilasterion, the appeasement, the satisfaction. So he's both the hilasterion as well as he purchased the hilasterion. He is the appeasement for our sins. Notice it's propitiation in his blood. Peter wrote to the believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, years ago, there used to be a debate as to what is efficacious for our sins. Is it the death of Christ or the blood of Christ? And I will say it is the death of Christ by the shedding of blood that is efficacious for our sins. Why did God display Christ as the appeasement, the satisfaction for our sins? Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Dr. John MacArthur writes, referring to God putting to death his own sinless son. He was without sin, as our text has already pointed out. But he writes this, But through that heinous act on men's part, God not only manifested his divine righteousness by offering his own son, but also used that act of divine grace to demonstrate his divine righteousness. God saves man not only because of his great love for us, but for his glory to demonstrate his righteousness for he is righteous. You see, through the satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the appeasing sacrifice that appeased God's demand for judgment, God remains just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It means to be shut out. But what kind of law? Of works, no, but by a law of faith. You see, there is no pride in salvation. Absolutely no pride. We did absolutely nothing. I saw a tweet yesterday that I had to respond to about this very thing, about those who believe, and I'll use this term, those who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation think that we're special I've never met anyone that believes in Reformed theology. There may be some, but I've never met anyone that thinks they're special, and that's why God chose them. Not at all. It's not what the Scripture says. We're not special. We were chosen for the glory of God. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. And again, Verse 3, 
What does the scripture say? Quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him, accredited to him as righteousness. And then we come to that last verse, verse 28, for we maintain, Paul writes, as an apostle, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification is apart from, separate from, antithetical to the works of the law. Paul, writing to Titus, says in chapter 3, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other salvation in his beautiful hymn. Horatius Bonner writes this. The hymn is not what these hands have done, but he writes this way. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength can save that which is divine can bear. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. You see, there is nothing else. There is no one else that can save my sinful soul. Only Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the one that bore my sins. It is through his atoning, appeasing, satisfying, redemptive sacrifice that sinners are made righteous. That is the grace of God. He is the satisfaction for my sins and not just the sins of the Jews, but for the whole world, whereby God is appeased and declares the sinner righteous, delivering the sinner from sin's bondage and its eternal consequences. You see, Christ is enough. He is more than enough. Matthew reveals this Christ, the Son of God, to be Yahweh, the eternal self-existing one, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who came, God in human flesh, who came and died, paying sin's payment. He rose from the dead, and he now reigns in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he who I want to serve, because this one is mighty to save. He sits in power in the heavenlies. He sits at the right hand of the throne of his father, and he is mighty to save. So I would say to you this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done. He is mighty to save sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isaiah 45, 22, Isaiah writes, or speaking for the Lord, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. I am God. It's El, the mighty one. So think of it that way. That's the Hebrew. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am the mighty one and there is none else. God can save your soul. 
God is able, he is mighty to save, to save the sinner, the one that comes to him in repentance, recognizing their condition, recognizing their sin, recognizing their guilt and their condemnation, and looking to him and him alone. Folks, that is the grace of God. He is mighty to save. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am the mighty one. And there is none other. As we prepare our minds and hearts for the Lord's table, may we be reminded this morning of the Lord's amazing grace. May we remember his death because we could never appease God's justice in and of ourselves. We could do not one iota towards accomplishing that. May we remember his death because we have no hope apart from his substitutionary appeasing death. May we remember his death because he is the sacrifice that appeased God's justice for those who believe. May we remember his death because we're children through faith in the living God, through faith in his son. And now we have communion with the living God and with one another. We are one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. Think about it. You see, the death of Christ is the manifestation of God's righteousness and the demonstration of his grace to sinners in whom we are chief. It's salvation to those who believe. The elements, the bread and the wine picture, his death. Pictures his amazing grace, his love for those in whom he chose. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken. And just as the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing access into the very presence of God, when Jesus Christ's body was broken, he brought all his own into the presence of the living God without guilt, without sin, because he gave us his righteousness. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ, and just as the Passover wine represented both celebration and blessing and judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ took our judgment that we might have his blessing, and so we celebrate. This is the Lord's table. It's the Lord's supper. We are to remember his death. We are to remember that it's all by the grace of God, by examining ourselves, which we're commanded to do before we partake of the Lord's table. It does not provide any saving grace for you. Again, it's not of works. But I believe we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as we remember, as we examine ourselves and remember his death. I think we are conformed to the image of Christ through it. We become more and more like him. So I challenge you now to examine yourselves, examine your heart, your worship, confess your sins so that you might partake in a worthy manner. If you're here and you're not saved or you don't know you're saved, no shame whatsoever. Let it pass you by. This is a serious observance. 
but contemplate what you've heard from the Word of God this morning. If you're a believer, if you have truly been born from above, born again or born literally from above, if you've had a spiritual birth through faith in Jesus Christ, then you're welcome to partake with us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's worship our Lord and remember his death.